This morning's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, then 4 through 11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of the Lord. I have never been to the Grand Canyon. It's on my bucket list. I hope I get to go there someday perhaps in retirement. But the story goes that there were three men that uh, were going to go visit the Grand Canyon together, an artist, a minister, and a cowboy. When they looked at this incredible expanse of canyon that God had created, this marvelous work of nature, the artist uh, exclaimed, what an incredible, beautiful scene to paint. The minister followed by saying, what a wonderful display of God's handiwork. And the cowboy retorted by saying, yeah, but what a terrible place to lose a cow. It's not unlike our approach to the Holy Spirit. Um, this week, when I was about 75 to 80% done with the, uh, with the outline of this sermon this week, uh, Chris came out with an email to, to all of us who are going to be, uh, thoughtfully, thoughtfully came out with an email to all of us who are going to be preaching over the next three months. And he said, gentlemen, you have freedom to, to preach wherever the Holy Spirit leads you. I only ask one thing, that you avoid any controversial topics. Well, I took the tiger by the tail on this one, didn't I? What was I thinking? But seriously, I did visit with Chris, I called him, reached out to him, and we talked through this. And while, while Chris and I may not 100%, we are very close, but we, while we may not 100% agree on all of the interpretations of these passages, we are on the complete same page of how we present these passages. And that's what I hope in that spirit to do with us today. Let's pray quickly, uh, just as we start to set the stage for this. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to open it, to dig in and help us to understand you and your workings more clearly. And Lord, this morning as I speak, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts as we listen and study and, and dig into the scriptures this morning be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The fact is, we, uh, we really can't define the Holy Spirit, can we? 
We can look at Scripture. We can see what He has done in Scripture. We can describe what He did in Scripture. We can describe what we experience Him doing today. Uh, And we can always be confident that the Holy Spirit will not work in a manner that's contrary to the Word of God. Because to do so, he would be contradicting himself, wouldn't he? And God never contradicts himself. That said, the Spirit will not be confined in our tidy theological boxes. In his book of, his third book of Institutes, John Calvin affirms this. He affirms that the Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to Himself. And Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, when he says, Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. I just love that word, guaranteeing. We can take that to the bank. Well, last week, Chris preached on the Holy Spirit, and he mentioned some points that I really would like to reiterate this morning just briefly. In one of his sections, he had five points, and I've listed them in your outline with Scriptures. We're not going to go through the Scriptures today for the sake of time. But I wanted to go through that just to lay the backdrop of really the, the importance of the coming of the Holy Spirit. These are foundational truths that we build upon our, our theology and our understanding of the Holy Spirit. These are things that we as Christians, that Christians generally across time and space and countries and national boundaries agree on. So let's take a look at these five things. First of all, the Holy Spirit brings the helping presence of all of God in all who believe. And Chris dug down a little bit into the word counselor and, and talked about what that means and what that means for us. The reference you'll see is in John chapter 14. But the point, the, 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 the idea is the Holy Spirit to us is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Secondly, he mentioned that The Holy Spirit reminds us what Jesus did and taught. Again, the Counselor in John 14, uh, Jesus talks about the coming of the Counselor and the importance of the Holy Spirit reminding us of His teachings. So when Jesus' temporal, physical absence from us in this plane of existence until we meet Him in glory, the Holy Spirit teaches us all of these things, reminds us as we dig into God's Word what it is that Jesus has to say for us today in our life. Thirdly, Chris mentioned that He bears witness for Christ. He empowers us for witness. And of course, we see in Acts chapter 1-8 where Jesus is telling the disciples that when they receive the Holy Spirit, they will have power to be His witnesses throughout the world. Fourthly, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of its guilt, an incredibly important role of the Holy Spirit today. He convicts you and I, doesn't He? When you sin, you know it, don't you? As a follower of Christ, when we sin, the Holy Spirit stings our heart. We know it. It prods us to confession. The Holy Spirit also convicts the world of its sin and guilt. 
Because frankly, brothers and sisters, a prerequisite, in fact, the primary prerequisite to coming to God, coming to Christ for forgiveness and restoration to God is an awareness and an admission of personal sin. It's very unusual to hear that in the world today, isn't it? It's a prerequisite, and the Holy Spirit does this. Fifthly and lastly, He produces in us new birth. Of course, Chris mentioned the John 3 episode of Jesus meeting with Nicodemus, being born again, and all of that meant. But this carries implications for us to have a holy life, doesn't it? For holy living. The Holy Spirit controls us and motivates us. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, you are controlled by the, not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. So if you've got the Holy Spirit, you are controlled by the Holy Spirit and not by that sinful nature. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, Paul writes, he does not belong to Christ. So again, these points these five points that I thought were so important from last week's sermon uh, form the foundation of our understanding of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and again, they're clearly taught in Scripture, and it's something that generally speaking, all of us as Christians across the world in time agree on. Today, however, I'd like to take just a little bit deeper dive and look at how the Holy Spirit equips followers of Christ to perform specific roles and functions within the church through what we call the gifts of the Spirit, or as some say, spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit graciously gives us gifts that enable us to build up and serve the church. And while we're not going to drill down into each one, into what it means, we're going to take a helicopter view of all the lists and then talk about that and how we should approach the multitude, the, the variety of gifts that we all bring to the table in this quest to build up Christ's church here. So, there's three passages. You know the passages. I've got them listed here in your, in your program for you as well. But let's, uh, first of all, take the first one in Romans 12. Um, there is some overlap, as you'll see in these lists. Uh, but the important thing is, and remember this, the theme for all of these that you're going to see in every one of these is building up the church in unity. That is the point. That's the theme. So Romans 12. Uh, here, I call these, this is just me. It's not a, you know, not a revelation from God or anything. It's uh, probably not something that the great theologians might even uh, have written. But I just call them the gifts, with the exception of the gift of prophecy, which we see here and I'm going to talk about. These are the gifts of talent or disposition. So Romans 12, Paul writes, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the members, all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, prophesying, let him prophesy. Let him use it in, uh, I'm sorry, if the man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. My apologies. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. 
If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So this, this list tops off with the gift of prophecy. And again, this, this, we're not going to dive too much into this, but this is one of those controversial gifts that, that, that some say doesn't continue into today. Some say that it does. But basically, I want to define this. The Greek term is uh, propheteia, and really basically the definition, the biblical definition is discourse emanating from divine inspiration, declaring the purposes of God. And I'll go so far as to say that the majority of prophecy that we see in the Bible is forth-telling, forth-telling proclaiming truth, confrontationally usually, forth-telling, reproving and admonishing the wicked, comforting the afflicted. But there's also an element in prophecy that we see that is foretelling, revealing things hidden, especially future events. And those, of course, uh, are all of our favorites of those future revealing events go back to Isaiah and, and the, the, the great prophets of the Old Testament who prophesied the coming of the Messiah that was fulfilled in Jesus. We see those so clearly, those passages prophetically written hundreds of years before Jesus entered the scene of history, confirming to us, affirming that yes, this is the one. Even before His resurrection, He fulfilled those prophecies. So the other lists, the, the continuation of this list is serving, teaching, encouraging, generosity, leadership, mercy. And I'll go so far as to say at least some of these appear to be gifts of either natural ability or disposition. And I don't, I don't consider that any less miraculous than the Holy Spirit empowering you on the spot, a gift that you never had before. These are gifts that were created in God as we see in Psalm 139, created while we were woven in our mother's womb. He mysteriously, he fearfully and wonderfully created us from birth with certain gifts and dispositions. Now these gifts and dispositions as we come to Christ and serve Him are empowered by the Holy Spirit for effectiveness in building up the church. Let's move on to the second list, Ephesians 4, and I call these the gifts of ministerial roles. Paul writes, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God to become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. These roles have specific roles in the church to build up, build up others, to equip the saints, to equip us in our service in building up the kingdom. Our ministers equip us, teach us, inspire us, preach to us the Word of God, and keep us on the right path, and encourage us, give us opportunities to serve and guide us and mentor us as we become those followers of Christ that build up the church. 
the term apostolos, translated apostle here, literally means a messenger, an envoy, a delegate, one who is commissioned by another in authority to represent him in some way. In the biblical term, this means a man sent out by Jesus Christ himself to preach the gospel. Uh, we traditionally say that the apostles were limited to the twelve, minus Judas plus Matthias, who took his place, and then the apostle Paul, although Paul does make mention of some others, Timothy, Apollos, Silas, that there may be other apostolic roles there in the New Testament as well. But historically, we've kind of limited that, haven't we? There's also, though, historically, an apostolic role, although we in our traditions, don't call them apostles, the apostolic role of carrying the gospel to the nations as a missionary to places where the gospel has never been heard before. That's an apostolic role, the kind of role. Although, again, we don't call them apostles because we believe the apostles had a specific role during that apostolic era. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But we also have prophet, evangelist, prophet again, evangelist, and pastor-teacher. These are roles that we're all very familiar with and know. Then let's move to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which Pete just read for us this morning. And I call these the manifestation or sign gifts. Not all of them, but, but most of them. Let's read starting in chapter 1. Now about spiritual gifts. Brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant and then he goes on in chapter, in verse 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there's given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of that same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To others, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And He gives them to each just as He determines. We've got quite a list here, don't we? Messages of wisdom, messages of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, all of these gifts that we typically don't see every day in our churches here, do we? The, the ones that, that we are most probably in this room familiar with. But what's the main point here in all of this? It's not the exotic nature of these gifts, is it? It's that the Holy Spirit does great and miraculous things. We know He can and does and has through Scripture. But the main point here is it's the same Spirit. The same Spirit that's given us all these gifts. The same Spirit that embodies us, that seeks to unify us as His church. The sameness of this. That's the focus on, across the theme of all of these. We are unified in the building up of the church. We all have different roles and gifts but that's the focus. Now, I think it's helpful to try to define what this is a little bit, defining the gifts of the Spirit. That's kind of a hard thing to do, but let's give it a shot using 1 Corinthians 12 here, and, and, and uh, let's just take a look in 
verse 1, the, the term spiritual gifts that we translate there, the, uh, the, the Greek term. And I feel a little bit intimidated because I understand we have a Greek scholar sitting right in front of me here. So, so just raise your hand and wave and just smile if, if I'm wrong and you can correct me later. <laughs> but uh, but I, in my limited understanding of Greek that I took in two years in seminary 30 years ago, uh, the, the, the term that we see here in the Greek is pneumaticon, ton pneumaticon, which really literally translated would come out more as spirituals. So regarding spirituals. We don't really have a good English word for that, do we? It's, so it's really things characterized and controlled by the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're referring to here. We translate that spiritual gift, for lack of a better term, and we all kind of understand that and know what that means, but this is really what it's saying. And then in chapter 4, we have the word gifts, different kinds of gifts. That word is charismata. Charismata. And literally, of course, that rings all kinds of bells with us, doesn't it, the way that sounds? But literally, that means grace, kindness, favor. So we translate that as a gift of grace, a gift of grace, something that God has given us through His favor. He's favored us by giving us this gift. All the gifts are given by the grace of God. There is no biblical distinction, hear me on this, between charismatic and non-charismatic gifts. They all come from God's grace. Verse 5, we see spiritual gifts are given with the purpose of serving others, different kinds of service. Again, that word you're familiar with, diakonos, that's the the deacons we get, the servants, service. And then in verse 6, different kinds of working. That Greek word really more literally is translated as operation, operations. If you're an operation manager, you know exactly what we're talking about here, but the operation or the functioning, spiritual, the cliff, the spiritual gifts deployed to operate Christ's church. And then verse 7, we have to each one the manifestation, and that word means to make clear, make visible, to display and it's given for the common good. So spiritual gifts are a visible display of Christ's care for His church through gracious gifts that He gives to you and I for service to build up the whole enterprise. We can see Christ working visibly manifested in what we do in this body. Isn't that exciting? I get chill bumps thinking about the honor and the privilege that we have to serve our God in this way, by building up His church. So, definition, if you will, this is rough. This is my attempt at defining these spiritual gifts, but basically, I would say they are enabling gifts bestowed by the Holy Spirit upon individual born-again believers so that by God's grace, we can enjoy the privilege of building up, serving, and operating the church for the common good of the whole body to the glory of Christ. Well, as we go on, let me clarify a couple of misunderstandings that, that, that I've noticed through the years but that people have, uh, just misunderstandings about spiritual gifts and what that means. But uh, there's a lot sometimes I hear, I've heard a lot in my past, uh, a confusion between 
spiritual gifts and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Two completely different things. Of course, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, and from that gift of the Holy Spirit, He gifts us with spiritual gifting to serve, as we've been talking about. But Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon here, says this. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Gifts of the Holy Spirit are not the same as the gift of the Holy Spirit, because in receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, we receive the Holy Spirit Himself, God with us, God living in us and through us as we serve. Another thing is the spiritual gifts and the fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes people want to tend to confuse these two things. The gifts of the Spirit, of course, according to Galatians 5, uh, are listed as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. These are the things that demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. These are demonstrating character traits of a person that is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And if you want to get a, a more complete look at what that is, simply go to John 15 and look where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches and bearing much fruit. The fruit of the Spirit are these things. It's traits of holiness that all believers share. In fact, it's what it means to be born again. Born again. We demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit as Christ grows us more to be like Himself. Then we have the supernatural manifestations versus the talents. And let me just briefly talk about this. Uh, in Scripture, we see what we see as spiritual gifts, both super mani ma supernatural manifestations that, that we see happening, particularly in the book of Acts, but also in real life experience, I believe. And the talents which God created us in the first place are both empowered by the Holy Spirit are both used for the same purpose of building up the church. Well, I'm going to move beyond that, and let's look at the topic of discovering your spiritual gifts. Now, I have to tell you, when I was a young Christian, a young man at Hardin-Simmons University in Abilene years ago, I came to campus. I had just really came to the Lord about a year earlier, and I was on fire. I was really wanting to experience God in every way I could, and everything was new to me. Everything was new. Although I grew up a preacher's kid and was taught all the things that preacher's kids are taught, I had it up here. It had moved its way into here and into my life a year earlier, and it just came to fruition at Hardin Simmons when I was there as a first-year student. And one of the things that I wanted to do was discover my spiritual gifts. I was excited about that. What are my spiritual gifts? What do I do? What is it that God wants me to perform in the church? And I think it's good to have this question. Don't get me wrong. I think this is a good question to ask. It really is. And, and we, we need to be finding what it is that God created and gifted us to do and be working out of that strength because I think in that strength, two things happen. We're most effective in ministry because that's what God created us to do. 
and gifted us to do. But secondly, putting it in John Piper words, it gives us the most joy. It gives us great joy when we're functioning, when we're, as I like to say, firing all on all cylinders in our walk with Christ and the way he created us to function. It's a joyous experience. But I think a better question to start with is, how can I best serve my church right here? I mean, we should not be limiting ourselves as we look at ways to serve the church to those things that we consider to be God-given strengths and giftings in our life. Because, you know, God may have something else for us, too. He may want us to learn in another way. And the church has needs, and we need to step up and meet those needs wherever they go, wherever they come. But that said, however, realize that God did gift you for a purpose. Find it and use it. A couple of practical things that I kind of thought about through my life is, number one, examine your desires when you're looking at this. I think that with the gift that God gives you comes a desire to exercise it. But I want to caution you here to be careful because your heartfelt motives can be deceptive, can't they? After all, Jeremiah reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? But I think God will create in us a desire to exercise those gifts that we have. Also, examine the evidence. In other words, don't be like the guy who claimed to have the gift of preaching, but strangely, no one else seemed to have the gift of listening. Examine the evidence. What have others, other believers walking alongside you, recognized in you? Some gifts, remember, have to be sharpened and honed and developed over time. But use your gifts to the best of your ability now. Work at them. Seek counsel. Seek someone that can be a mentor for you in this way. We're never too old and never too experienced to have mentors, are we? Never. And to the church, I would say, we need to be extending opportunities to young believers under the guidance of these loving mentors. Give them a chance to learn what they're gifted in and to grow in that because after all, they are our next generation of leaders in the church. It's our responsibility to pass that torch to them. And then thirdly, examine the opportunities that God puts before you. Always pray, where, Lord, do you want me to serve? Given the range of opportunities available here, considering the gifts and talents you've entrusted me with, to edify Christ's church now here in this place. I mean, you know, God has a purpose for every one of us in every phase of our life. Remember that too. There is no retirement in a walk with Christ. There's no such thing. There is no vacation. Although we have vacations and we need downtime, obviously, I'm not talking about that, but there's no vacation from our walk with Christ, is there? Prayerfully look for God's purpose for your life. Embrace it with tenacity and be faithful to complete it. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this next week, about the phases in our life and how we do this. But to be responsible now for these texts, I need to jump in real quickly, and I hope I can do this in just a few minutes. 
the Holy Spirit and the sign gifts. We need to address that because that is, after all, the 800-pound gorilla in the room this morning, isn't it? So there are two opposite positions that I want to kind of throw out here for you this morning. Uh, one of them is called, and again, I, I kind of hate labels. I don't like to be labeled, but for the sake of clarity, let's label, okay? We've got cessationism, and then on the other hand, we've got continuationism. So basically, uh, again, today's goal is not to you know, lay out the scriptural arguments for each of these positions. And, and, you know, fair warning, disclaimer, I will probably not make everybody happy in this room this morning. You know, hopefully I won't create a great schism, <laughs> you know, between the Eastern and Western church. I won't do that. But, uh, but again, there are ways to interpret these things that we're going to agree and disagree on at times. But that's not the point this morning. Rather, I really want to generally describe these positions themselves to try to gain a measure of understanding for what they believe and why they believe it. And then most importantly, address how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Most of all, most of us somewhere fall in between these two positions. And we are serious about handling the Word of God. And I, I, I give everyone that benefit of the doubt, especially, especially here in this church, because I know you guys, and I know how you take the Scriptures seriously. And I, I so much love that and appreciate about that, this church. But we are doing our best all to faithfully interpret and live out the Scriptures. So let's recognize that before we dive into any of this. So looking recognizing that and looking into cessationists, that's, I'll say for cessationists, tongues, prophecy, and healing, such gifts, the sign gifts, all of that kind of thing, in particular, are singled out as having ceased after the apostolic age. They were, according to a cessationist view, a temporary dispensation to establish the church and I don't say dispensation in the mean in the in the term terminology of dispensationalism. That's not what I mean. But they were a temporary uh, gift of God to establish the church. They were manifested to authenticate and advance the gospel. And now that the church and the canon, the scriptures that we have, are established, there's no need today for these gifts. Now the problem with this is there's no really solid. There's perhaps, if you interpret it this way, some scriptural suggestion, but there's no solid scriptural teaching that declares that any of the gifts would cease before the return of Christ. Largely, I think this view is based on what I would call inductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning meaning it's through observation over time. As the usage of these gifts waned over time, you don't see them, for instance, well, you see, you see them in 1 Corinthians in this list, but you know, later in the other letters of Paul, Romans and Ephesians, you, you don't really encounter those. Already then, they had, they, had, they had begun to not be used with the frequency that you saw in the Corinthian church and other places in Acts. So on the other hand, you've got the, the continuationists, and for the continuationists, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit continue in operation today just as they were in the early New Testament or apostolic, as we would say, era. And of course, for me, the problem with this view is in the Western church, particularly, 
we seldom, if ever, see these gifts being exercised according to the biblical model and guidelines. Correspondingly, there's really no assurance as to their validity or authenticity. Now, putting this into practice today, let's just set aside the other sign gifts and look at one in particular, which I think is the one that you all would probably pick to look at as well, and it's speaking in tongues. Let's take a look at the very different way that those who hold these positions handle that practice. Uh, Speaking in tongues, the extreme views, I will say, the added cessationist would say that the gift of tongues was in fact a temporary miraculous ability to speak in different languages only for the purpose of advancing the gospel and establishing the church. The exercise of speaking indecipherably in tongues as some practice today in this view is at best a as J.I. Packer and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, Professor Thomas Schreiner would say, a psychological relaxation. And at worst, as John MacArthur would say, demonic manifestation. The extreme charismatic side, on the other hand, who are continuationists, would say that every Christian should speak in tongues. And if they don't, they don't have the Holy Spirit. Basic salvation first, then a second blessing later where you see the evidence of speaking in tongues. The filling of the Spirit is always, in this view, demonstrated and accompanied by the speaking in tongues. And this ecstatic utterance is what we're talking about. Well, obviously, these two extremes, we can poke holes in both of them. And I think in this room, most of us, we would agree, fall somewhere in between that. I'm just going to be honest with you. Now, in your outline, by the way, there is a a section on Acts, going through Acts. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to be able to cover that this morning. But there are four episodes in Acts, I will mention, where you see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. You see the Holy Spirit coming upon people. You see them in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19. And in each way, you see the Holy Spirit working in different ways. Sometimes you see tongues accompanying. Sometimes you see tongues as foreign languages at Pentecost happening. Clearly, languages. It's the gift of speaking in another language. And then other times you see the Holy Spirit coming before baptism, after baptism, only after the laying on of hands. But the point is, in each one of these instances in Acts, all four of these, there is a point and a purpose that the Holy Spirit is trying to accomplish. In Acts chapter 2, he's authenticating before the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah at Pentecost as seen by the tongues of fire and the speaking in other languages that others understood in their own language. In chapter 8, we have an authentication of the Jews' guardianship of the covenant as the Samaritans believed and were baptized, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit until they brought in Peter and John who laid their hands on them. 
And then they received, only then did they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And no tongues, by the way, on that one at all. And then in chapter 10, you see an authentication of the gospel before Jewish Christians of the Gentiles' acceptance of, uh, uh, by God of, of, of as children of God. Peter and Cornelius, what a wonderful, beautiful story. And in this case, Peter, before he even quits preaching, before he even quits saying his message, delivering his message, they start speaking in tongues. And what could they say? The Holy Spirit has moved. Who are we to argue? So it's an authentication that the Gentiles are indeed open for receiving the gospel. And then finally in Acts 19, uh, you know, we have the men of Ephesus that were baptized in John's baptism only. And then we see basically that, that as they baptize them in the name of Jesus, Paul lays hands on them, they receive the Holy Spirit, and then they speak in tongues and begin to prophesy, verifying the fact with these folks that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance only, and Jesus is the way, the Messiah. So in every area, you see the Holy Spirit working in a way that's different. We can't kind of categorize it, can we? We can't put it in a box and say that this is the way He's always going to work. There is no definitive pattern in these passages. The Holy Spirit moves in order to accomplish a specific purpose of God to advance the kingdom of God. And while He will not work, as we said earlier, in a manner that is contrary to God's Word, His activity cannot be contained in our theological systems completely. We can describe what we know of Him, and we do, again, have these basic understandings that we talked about with Chris last week, but we always have to understand that God is bigger than who we see. And there are elements of Him that we have not yet experienced. Our guide is His Word. Our counselor is His Spirit. But we have to know that what we see now is but a dim reflection. When we see Him face to face, we will know fully. So to summarize, I'm just going to be honest with you. Personally, uh, I come from a very, very hard cessationist background. I'll just have to throw that out there. You know, my dad was a, a die-in-the-wool Southern Baptist preacher, you know, and I grew up that way. And, and that's the way I believed all the way through college and into seminary and beyond even. But, uh, you know, I, I have to tell you, even today, I am suspicious of the sign gifts, especially tongues. I, I approach it with caution. I have, and, and probably the biggest reason why is I have never witnessed them being exercised biblically. What I have witnessed is more blatant false teaching on a wide variety of critical issues by groups that abuse these practices without reference to biblical guidelines than any other place in Christian circles. When you abuse what the Bible says about the gifts, that tells me that you can also abuse what the Bible teaches about other things. However, I have to tell you, I am particularly careful when it comes to questioning the work of the Holy Spirit. As I have 
encountered, as I've prayed with, as I've worshiped with, and as I've served alongside other devoted, committed followers of Jesus from other nations around the world and from other cultures different than our own, my positions on this hard cessationist thing have softened considerably, considerably. Many of these devoted followers of Christ I speak of embraced tongues and signs. I have to tell you, I still don't understand it, but I know that they are sincere. I have worked with them and prayed with them and worshiped with them, and the Spirit agrees in my heart with them that they are authentic believers and followers of the Lord. The Lord reminds us again, you know, in Paul's letter, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. So my approach to all of this is very cautious with humility and reverence, hopefully. First of all, I acknowledge this is my interpretation. Again, I'm not telling you that this is the way you need to approach this, but this is the way I have come to grips with this over the year as a former hard cessationist who's someone who has come and softened my views considerably on this issue. I acknowledge that speaking in tongues has been used by God in the past to accomplish His purposes, as we clearly see in Scripture. No dispute on that point. Secondly, I acknowledge the possibility that speaking in tongues today may continue as a legitimate spiritual gift. I don't understand it. I, I don't understand it because I, I don't participate in that. I, I have not experienced it myself, but I have to acknowledge that it is a possibility. Those who say that they have to to have the gifts of tongues, however, and this is a big however, must be held accountable to exercise it according to the biblical guidelines, according to Scripture. It's incumbent also on you and me, all of us, to test the spirits. Paul warns us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that there will be counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. It gives us a red flag about that. In 1 John, the apostle tells us, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And finally, the apostle again in Revelation uh, is, uh, tells us how God is pleased that the church in Ephesus tested those who claimed to be apostles, but were false. So my encouragement to you and to myself today is let's continue with diligence to study the Scriptures, asking the Holy Spirit to guide us in interpreting these views, to guide us in how we relate to others who have different views than ourselves, all for the purpose of unity and building up the body of Christ. We may not find that we can worship together because we disagree so adamantly on some points. But that doesn't mean we, we cut them off and treat them as if they are pariah, which many churches from my past, I know, have done to others that were legitimate, God-fearing, Christ-serving bodies of believers. Remember that the gifts of Spirit are given to edify and to build up the entire church. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. 
From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. It is no accident, I believe, that in the middle of these 1 Corinthians passages, uh, which can be so controversial, that sandwiched between those is the greatest chapter on love that exists. And now, I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have no love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But as we all know, the greatest of these is love. May the Lord teach us what that means within the church. Let's pray together as we go into communion. Father, again, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for the guidance that we receive, the encouragement that we receive through it. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, our counselor, who leads us in all things, who gives us knowledge, who convicts us of our sin, who shows us Jesus as we walk with him every day. So, Lord, we We pray that we will be free from pride, that we would walk humbly, that we would be confident in your word unswervingly, that we would be diligent and serious about our interpretation of your word, that we would listen to others but not deviate from what the word of God tells us and the Holy Spirit confirms in our hearts as truth. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.